Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Mackey. We didn't give you much warning that the lights were going to come back on after they had gone off, but it's, it's a must, especially at these events where we wear you out, so just be prepared for that to happen. Uh, well, I'm so excited to be here with all of you this week and just have much anticipation for what God's going to communicate to us and, and what he's going to do through us for one another and how he's going to be drawing us together. Uh, the theme of our week is, is focus, and this is a time to focus uh, on God, to, to be fully attentive, which there are few spaces in life that are, are left to do that. And so I think you know, now more than ever, there's just value for getting away, unplugging, and being fully available to what God wants to do. Uh, but you'll see there in your notes a few definitions of this word. I think they all have helpful nuances to this. Focus is a center of activity, attraction, or attention. It's a point of concentration, directed attention or emphasis, a state or condition permitting clear perception or understanding. And then this one's thrown in there as well. It's also the place of origin for an earthquake. And we'll see where that's going to come in later in the week. But we live today, and I want us to be students of this. So I'm going to take a little time to, to kind of make a case for this. Uh, we live in a time of, a, of abundance. We just have a lot. We have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of time on our hands, even though it doesn't feel like that because life gets so filled up. Uh, but we just have a lot, a lot of resources. But abundance has to be managed. We, we have to learn how to handle all that is in our hands. You know, for, for most of human civilization, people have just been kind of trying to survive. You know, how, how are we going to get our, our next meal? How are we going to beat the mortality rate uh, for humanity? How, how are we going to get through the end of the day working long in the fields? You know, wh whatever plague or war that we're currently dealing with, right? That, that has not characterized the world that you and I have grown up in, right? Now we have to figure out whether or not we want to buy one of these things. Yeah. Right there. This is, a, this is a cat mask. Actually, you, you send in a picture of your pet, and they'll make an identical mask that you can dress up in and hang out with your pet, you know, in a way that they understand, I guess. It's really special bonding time. And that can be yours uh, for a low price of $2,756. Uh, we have gone from cat pictures and cat videos invading the Internet to now products like this, right? That, that's, a, that's a ridiculous example. But every day, uh, we're, we're confronted with stuff to add to life. Another thing to, you know, press the plus button and, and let it occupy space, spend our money, spend our attention, spend our, our time. So much vies for our, our pursuit. And these little devices that are, shouldn't be in your pockets right now, uh, but, the, but the smartphone, it, it, it's just a helpful metaphor for that because it, it connects you to a whole universe of these things. Uh, 
we check our smartphones about 81,500 times a year or every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives, which means if, if that hadn't been taken away from you, you would be tempted to check that about 10 times uh, minimum throughout my, my time talking to you while you're trying to listen. But we, we, we start to itch for that. Our brains, it's like they fall in love with distraction. You ever notice it's like, you know, when your stomach gets hungry and you want to head to the fridge and see what's there, your, your brain does that. It, it, it wants a snack break. It wants some other input, some other thing to watch, to look at, to interact with, to rescue me out of my boring existence right now, out of the, the meeting I don't want to be in, or uh, some aunt's home that I'm over visiting family, and, you know, I'm kind of tired of trying to figure out small talk with people I only see once a year, so let me sit on the couch and pull this out and see what else might be available to me. But over time, we, we itch. For, for that new stimulus. We feel the pull for it. And this comes to dominate life. And, and it affects everything else. About 80% of teens bring their phones with them into the bedroom at night. About a third of you guys will actually sleep with it in your bed like it's some kind of teddy bear. I think that was referenced in the rules video. Uh, you know, we, we bring these devices right up close and, and almost snuggle up with them because we, we can't uh, bear to be without them, which, of course, decreases our sleep because that's more time you're looking at that before actually going to bed. And, and that, that, that just leads to things like teen depression and anxiety and the dominoes fall. But, but here's the point. We live in a culture that wants our eyes. YouTube certainly does. YouTube has a corporate goal to achieve one billion hours of viewership every day. They, They want a total, you know, add up the people around the world who are on their website, they want a total of one billion hours of video content being watched every single day, which is why when you come to the end of your video, without asking any permission from you, automatically the next one plays. It just goes into something you didn't ask for, but it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm watching this now, too. It just rolls on along with the advertisements and other ways that they try to build revenue. It, it, it's, it's kind of funny to watch um, companies, streaming companies, make fun of themselves a little bit, although I'm not really sure that they are. It's, it's hard to figure out what's a, what's a joke or what's just sad reality. Uh, for example, Hulu has now uh, teamed up with Visine, you know, the eyedrop uh, company, uh, to help you make sure you're getting in all your Hulu time. And so, you know, as you're on your phone, on your iPad, at your TV at home, most of the time you're alone, not talking to another human being, isolated, and you've watched enough of it, all you got to do is grease your eyeballs with more Visine right here like this guy and, and keep going, right? That, that's their actual ad campaign. This is your moment. Nothing stands between you and your Hulu when you've got Visine. Uh, Netflix has actually made fun of themselves a little bit with this. And uh, the, the show Black Mirror that they produce, ha- they've come up with an ad campaign called Netflix Vista. 
This is pretty meta right here because it's, it's Netflix commenting on itself. It, it, they, they envision these futuristic contact lenses that you just put in. And so you never have to pause. You never have to break. No matter where you are, I mean, yeah, you're riding on the subway, that's nice, but then you're sitting down at an intimate dinner with your loved one, and, and, and it's, it's kind of creepy. They, they, they both got these little contact lenses with these images and videos running across their eyes while there's a candlelit dinner between them. And then the scene shifts, and a, a man is by the bedside of his dying grandmother, and he's binge-watching Netflix <laughs> all along. It is sci-fi and yet sad reality in another way. But, but listen, here's what this means. Your resources, your ability to see something, to pay attention to it, to, to be awed by it, to be moved by it, to be amazed, to, to be compelled to act, you only have so much of that. And that's getting spent Anybody come here tonight and you feel spent? Or you only have so much energy. We'll talk about how we spend our energy tomorrow night. But, but I, I, I'm aware you, you, you have only so much ability to, to think about something, to notice something, to take interest in something, to, to find it to be worth your time, worth your response. And you may have used up 90% of that before we even got started tonight. How much is left to even interact, to, to behold what we're going to be doing this week? We have a thousand options that are available to us, presentations of how to spend our passions, of what kind of talents and skills we're to pursue, what we're to be known for, right? Maybe there used to be this like one thing that eventually... You know, you're about 16 or 17, you discover that's my thing, that's my sport, that's my instrument, that's my hobby, that's what I'm going to develop, that's what I'm going to take classes and, and pursue. You guys fill up your schedules because there's just a lot more available and a lot more that is demanded of you in all of these categories. And, and listen, a life that's filled with options that sounds like a freeing thing, you know? Who wants just one choice? Who wants two choices? That's boring. You know, give me 10. Give me 100. Give me 1,000 things that I could possibly pursue. Sounds pretty freeing, isn't it? But, but think about the anxiety that this creates. In fact, there, there's something called choice anxiety, which means that over time, we, we struggle to make the right choice. I mean, we've all had the experience when you, you kind of browse through Netflix and you realize 45 minutes, an hour has been wasted just trying to pick a movie. <laughs> you know, uh, it used to be like whatever's on TV, I'm not particularly interested in watching Die Hard 2, but that's playing. That's what's being broadcasted on cable right now. So I guess I'm, I'm watching Law and Order reruns. But now, like, I feel this. It's like, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to waste my time on some lame thing. So I'm going to read reviews. I'm going to uh, interact with that. I'm going to do my research because there might be something better out there. There might be a better option. You know, I don't, I don't want to settle for something lame. Right? We, everything from the, the amount of uh, 
products that are on the aisles in the supermarkets. I, I told this to the youth. I mean, you, you just, you walk down a condiment aisle and, and you've got like 50 different types of mayonnaise and all of them ought to be burned and just taken away completely. Just get rid of the evil condiment. Um, but, you know, you, you, you go to Wendy's and you go to get a Coke and, and that electronic dispenser, it just has so many different combinations. I think there's 146 total flavors that you could choose. Which one is it going to be? And you do that again and again and again, and, and, and it wears on you. It takes a piece of your mind, a piece of your existence. And, and we take that same approach. We can do that in our relationships. That, that thought that there's some idea out there that might be better for me. Might be worth my time. Right? Because you're so digitally connected, you, you might feel like you have a lot of friends while at the same time complaining that your friends are fake. You know, they don't really care about me. They don't really get me. They're just after doing what they want. And it might be that your friends are fake, you know? Uh, or it, it might be that they, they just don't really compare well against that little sitcom that you're watching where everybody has inside jokes that are perfectly timed with a laugh track behind it, right? And, and, and reality doesn't conform to that. And so there's some illusion that maybe I could be doing better and we can surrender what we have. Listen, interacting so often based on your preferences affects you. This kind of scattered, select from the options that you want, you, you will start to relate to your parents in that way. You'll, you'll start to think that you can, you can treat them on your terms, you can talk to them how you want, you can create your own schedule, and they have to come into agreement with that, right? There's always been an element of that, always been teen parent tension, but, but listen, you, you, your habits in life reinforce the thought that you get to design your own world among the thousand things. I'm going to pick this and this and not this, and I'm going to opt out of that. And when you become a challenge to me or difficult or make me uncomfortable, I just don't even need that. I'm going to unfollow that feed. That's how life gets presented to us today. It affects how we see and treat people. People get turned into memes, right? Real human beings, they become images that we see. It's interesting to see um, celebrities, you know, kind of challenge that thought. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with Ariana Grande's song, Focus. It's a few years old now. Uh, back in 2015, she came out with this song, she says, but if my real ain't real enough, then I don't know what is. Focus on me. Focus on me. Focus on me. Focus on me. I wonder what the message of that song is all about. Actually, it might not be quite what we think. When she went to explain herself, she said, I literally mean focus on me. And what I'm all about and what I believe in. The more we focus on each other as people and not what we look like, not what we're wearing or our gender, our hairstyle, our sexuality, the color of our skin, but focus on each other on a soul level. The more we realize how much we have in common, 
the more we listen to each other, the more one we become. Do you know that's what that song was about? <laughs> Amidst the, the background dancers and the layers of makeup and the lyrics that Ariana Grande likely didn't even write and, and the, the sexual icon that she is, she, she wants on some level to be really known, to be authentic, to be a real person, but everything about the way that we view her trains us not to focus on her as a person. The next video just auto-plays in the feed, and we move on. All right, this is just one example, but what we view, what we're entertained by, it forms our approach to life. Look at this thought from Cal Newport. He's not a believer, but this is essentially what this week is all about. He says this, our brains construct our worldview based on what we pay attention to. Who you are, what you think, feel, and do, what you love, is the sum of what you focus on. All right, so in the midst of all the noise, all the confusion, all the opportunities that are before us and the things that scroll past our screens, what do we focus on? Well, Jesus was actually asked this question and gave a profound answer for this. He gave a, a, a whole vision for life, something that takes everything else in to how he described this. And he answered it in terms of love, what we are to love. Because over time, you will give your eyes, you will give the space of your life, you will give your attention and your pursuit and your focus to what you love. Let's read this together. Mark chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, and I told everybody to grab one before coming to your seat, if you didn't bring one with you, open up there. It'll be on the screen as well, but I want you to be able to look at it in the page and be able to flip back and forth to some stuff with me. So Mark 12. We're going to read verse 28 through 31 to start. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus gives two key priorities here. And we're going to spend our time with him this week. We're going to love God, and we are to love others. The, the, the conversation comes, 
you know, Jesus is interacting with crowds. There are people that come with their questions. Some of them have their own little hidden agendas. They want to trap him. They want to stump him. They want to make a fool of him before others. So they're just trying to trick him and trip him up in some way. And he just answers either by raising another question or by showing how they're insincere in what they're asking. And just that happens again and again. And so then there's one scribe who notices this and says, here's, here's a man who's, who's worth asking this question here. Jesus, what's, what's most important? There are 613 commandments throughout the Torah, throughout the, the Old Testament law. Right? This is just a lot to read. There's a lot to interact with. There's a lot to try to memorize. How do you rank them, Jesus? Can you give me a summary? Can you tell me what makes priority number one? What's at the top of the list? And Jesus gives his answer here. And the first one that he mentions, it's called the Shema. And Jews would actually recite this two times a day. They would wake up in the morning and they would say it. It would set the course for life and they would say it before going to bed. And that word Shema, it's, it's the Hebrew word for hear. And it doesn't mean like hear when your mom's telling you to go pick up your stuff and clean your room. And, and, and technically, you know, audio waves traveled through the room and, and entered into your ears. Uh, not like that. Uh, it, it means listen. It, it means listen up. Pay attention, focus on this, hear this, Israel. The Lord your God is one. He is the one thing. He's exclusive. He's the only God. He's the only Lord. He dominates life. He reigns over it. You, you give 100% of your allegiance and your worship and your trust to him and, and you give 0% to any created thing, any rival deity, any other claim that you face in this world. And that was given to Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, as they had seen Yahweh trounce on all the Egyptian gods and make a fool of them with one plague after another. And this is given now in the book of Mark. And the, and, and the gospel has gone out and, and Mark is writing to a church that exists in Rome amidst a, a pantheon where, where they, had to, they had to do life with, in, in a pluralistic society where you were seen as weird and, and, and a troublemaker if, if you denied the gods of the marketplace, if you, if you didn't show them some respect by burning incense, there were certain rituals that you were supposed to do. But, but, but you know, th this is after Alexander the Great has kind of conquered, and so you have the, the, the Greco-Roman Empire and these highways of information and thousands of perspectives and, and ways to approach life, and, and a good Roman citizen would say, yeah, I'll, I'll believe that too. I'll add that too. Sure, if that works for you, that'll work for me too. And Jesus is crystal clear. All of that goes away. There's just one. One God worthy of your focus.
and, and worthy of every piece of your existence, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart is the, the center of someone's thoughts and their affections. It's, it's the essence of who you are. It's the source of your desires, your cravings, your yearnings. The heart in the Bible, it, it, it contains in, intense emotion. It, it can experience distress and fear and sadness and sorrow and satisfaction and joy. That the heart is, is the, it's the steering wheel of life. Where it turns, everything else follows. It's, the, it's, it's where your motives are located, the reasoning for why you do what you do, what moves you towards something and away from something else. What if it were made available to you, you would sign up for it in a heartbeat, and what if somebody said, hey, we're going to go do this, you would instantly, you know, be like some kind of gag reflex response. You know, no way, I'm not, I'm not involving myself with that at all. But all of that is, is located in, in the heart. And, and God's saying, that piece of you, I want it. Your soul. Your soul is, is these, this invisible aspect of who you are. Right? We're, we're not just bags of meat. We're not just bodies. You, you can kill the body, Jesus said, but you haven't killed the soul. There's something about us that's more than just natural stuff. We don't just live by bread alone. There, there is a soul inside of us. And, and if we neglect it, we will not lead a healthy life. And, and sometimes all the distractions that we have and all the, just kind of the next thing, the next thing that I don't really have to give serious thought to why I do what I do, to what I'm worried or concerned about, to how I am before God because just another thing invades my awareness. They, they prevent us from ever having to examine our souls. Listen, how many young people are living in an anxious, confused life because they attend to all the updates and likes and news items and, and do not give any focus to their soul. And it starves from eating junk food all the time. All the, all the spaces of life get filled in. Any, any time when I might have to confront, am I okay? What does God think about my attitude? What does God think about what I'm doing right now? I don't ever have to listen to that. Because I got earbuds in, I got AirPods, I've got, I've got more noise that gets to drown that out. I can check Snapchat. Timothy Keller says that your religion is what you do with your solitude. And where do, where do you go? In, instinctually, where, where does your mind go? What do you dwell on? You have a moment alone. How often does it, does it run to God? Think about his greatness. Think about his plan, his purposes for you, how he, he created you with care and intentionality and has saved you and has set a course for life 
for you. Jesus is saying here, you are to love God so much that it dominates your solitude. There's, there's a peace in you that you just go to God. He says you're to love him with your mind, which is your, your understanding, your beliefs, the things that get our attention and, and our strength, our energy, our, our power, our resources, our time, our capacity, our, our talents. So we're going to take some time to think about the mind and the strength tomorrow night. But Jesus is giving a vision for loving God with all that we are. That there, there's no aspect of us that he doesn't make a claim over. There's, there, there's no peace that we can kind of compartmentalize on the side and, and let somebody else have that. Let something else reign over that. He, he, he sees all of us as available to him. Tony Reiki says, the living God expects to be sought and pursued with all the focus and attention and affection of our hearts. Now, it's really interesting to see what surrounds this passage right here, right? And notice this. Bible stories, they're not arranged randomly. It's not like here's a, here's a neat tale, then here's some other episode, and here's some random miracle that Jesus did, and here's a nice proverb, and here's a fortune cookie. That's not how the Bible is arranged. And so if, if you will slow down and actually take time to notice what, What's the context here? What, what happens before it and what happens after? It, it'll make your Bible reading come to life. And I certainly experienced that in studying for this because you have one story after another that, that Jesus exposes people's priorities. He shows how they run after what they love. In chapter 11, you can kind of flip back a page. We're not going to read through these. I just want you to notice the little paragraphs in the sections. Verse 15, you know, Jesus has come in to Jerusalem as king. It's called the triumphal entry. And it says he comes in and he inspects the temple. He looks around. He sees what's filled it up. And, and the next day, he comes and he cleanses it out because the temple was busy with all the wrong activity. The, the, the temple that, that Herod had, had rebuilt, it was this massive structure. It was on this huge raised platform. It was this big spectacle, right? All eyes in Jerusalem would have been on it. It, it, was, a, it was a kind of a tourist stop. And it was loud and it was frenzied and, and it was busy, but he comes inside of it and, and people are buying and selling and there's commerce and there's all this activity and noisy animals and all that's happening. And Jesus forms a whip and he drives it all out. And, and he says, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Do, do you notice what that means? The, 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 the temple had a, had a purpose. It, it had a purpose to be about God, to be directed toward him, to be, to be a place of, of prayer, a, pr a place of interaction between God and man. And so you've broken the first commandment that we're to love God with everything that we have. And instead, you, you've made it a den of robbers. People, people were being taken advantage of 
right? They, they come in with their money and, and, and the, 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 the temple officials would, would exchange for them and say, oh, you know, you, don't, you, you got the old temple rate, we've got a new one here. And, and so there'd be all this interest that they would add on to that and the, and the poor were being exploited. They weren't loving God and they weren't loving neighbor and so Jesus clears it out because there, was, there were sinful things that were happening there. People were being taken advantage of. That should, should have never happened. But there, there was also, you know, Jesus doesn't just drive out the sellers. You, know, you jerks, you're mistreating people. That's not what's most important here because he drives out all the people who were buying stuff there too because they, they had taken something and they had, had made it about things that God had never intended, things that weren't bad. It was good for you to be able to go and buy a sacrifice, but it didn't belong there. It didn't belong in the main thing. Jesus, later on in chapter 12, verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians come and ask him if it's okay to pay taxes to Rome, and, and they, they want him to anger one of two groups. Right? Either Jesus, you're going to make yourself a target because if you start saying, hey, you don't longer have to pay taxes to Rome, they're going to come in and they're going to arrest you because you're, you're some insurrectionist, you're, you're somebody who's against the state. But if you say, no, that's fine, you should, all the people who, 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 whose backs are being crushed by Rome's oppression are suddenly going to think, that guy's no hero. He doesn't fix my problems in life, the, the, the government that I, that I hate because they, they've come in and taken over my nation. And so they, they try to force Jesus into being in a lose-lose situation. And Jesus does this. He doesn't answer their question. He says, give me a, a, a denarius, a coin. And so they have to then reach into their pockets and bring it to him. What's that expose? You use this stuff. You use Rome's money. You're content doing that. Look at it in front of everybody. And so if you're going to interact with their currency and their system, you're going to pay taxes to that. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose image is on that coin? Well, it's Caesar's. He's, he's minted it with his picture. He's put his icon on it. All right. So you can render it to him. And give to God the things that belong to God. Where's God stamped his image? He's put it on you and me. He's, he's stamped his, his icon on our existence, on our lives. And so we owe him devotion and worship and obedience and honor. And Jesus says, you, you bring that to him. Jesus brings a warning later in chapter 12, verse 38, of the, of the scribes. He says in verse 38 in teaching, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus picks on the, the religious people, the good people, the people who were supposed to be the experts. And, and he says, 
He, he sees right into their hearts. And they don't care about God and neighbor. They, they want to be the focus. They care about their clothes. They care about how they're dressed. They got to have the right threads on. They care about their status. They care about how they stand in relation to other people. What, do other people recognize about them? Do they use the right title? Do they, do they play, place them in a position of honor? They want that for themselves and not glory and attention to be on God. And then somehow they, they were taking advantage of, of widows, of the, of the vulnerable, of the very people that God had called them to love and protect, and they found them to be disposable. Listen, if you, if you don't love God with everything that you are, that will always affect how you relate to people because you'll use and abuse them. And, and if, if you, if you kind of help me out and you get me something that I want and, and I like being seen with you, great, but if you become a liability, I'm ready to move on because I don't need you for that. And listen, these were the church people. You, you can be a, a good kid. You can be somebody who avoids all the bad stuff. You, you can... You can have life in order. You can be one of the kids that other parents say, hey, why can't you be more like so-and-so? You know, don't you love when your mom says that to you? So-and-so's kids, they never do that, right? You could be that example. And yet, there's zero affection for God that causes you to be content when the spotlight is on him alone and not on you and leads you to serve people in radical ways rather than just use them. For your ends. The final scene here, Jesus sits down across from the temple treasury and watches. He wants to see where do people place their devotion. And the rich come in and they throw in large amounts and it clanks around. There was this like horn-shaped thing that was there in the, in, in the collector box and, and, and they, they love to be impressive in what they give. But it says that they gave out of their abundance. They gave out of their excess. They, they brought their leftovers and they got their reward when people would notice, wow, whoa, you must be somebody to really give all of that. And there's this, this one widow who comes and she has to her name two coins. And it gets translated as like they make up a penny. They, they make up the smallest amount of currency that you could have in the day. And no, she has two of them. She could have just given one of them. But she gives everything that she has. And Jesus, his eyes are on her. And he commends her because she's, she's laser focused on what she loves and finds God to be a greater treasure than, than all that she has to live on. She takes her future. She takes her security. She takes the sense of life tomorrow is going to be okay. And she just hands it over and says, all of this belongs to him. She gladly gives it. Where did this commandment come from? That we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, Mind and strength. Well, if you would take that paper Bible that you've got there and you can flip 
back into the Old Testament, reach into the book of Deuteronomy. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I think this is in your notes as well. In verse 4, this is as Israel is about to enter the promised land. And, and God has them slow down. And he says, everything you've learned, Moses, say it again. Right? You've got a little bit of a deja vu experience. You read Exodus and then you come to Deuteronomy and it's like, oh, well, this is the same stuff. What happened here? Because um, this is stuff that's worth your focus. And so he brings these reminders and we're given this. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is the Lord your God, you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Right? He, he's, he's wanting them to have good things, right? This, this is not a message to escape life, go live on an island, don't download any apps. You know, we, we, we still use Caesar's money. All of that's normal. And, and he says, I've got, I've got prepared for you a land of, of provision and abundance and blessing and, and stuff to taste and stuff to see and, and cities and, that, that already exist that you get to enjoy. Somebody else worked for them. You get to benefit from the, from the riches that exist here. And I want you to have it. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to go about your lives and your days experiencing the good things of creation. But you have to be careful because there's this, there's this entropy that's inside of you. There's this pull that the land that you live in, this effect that it will have on you, it will cause you to forget me. And not forget like God. That name sounds familiar, you know. Uh, who's that? Uh, he's not talking about some weird lobotomy experience here. Forget in the sense that God's there. God did this. Thanks. But, but he has receded into the, the scenery. He's in the background. He's not in the center. He's not in focus. He doesn't have any sort of relevance for what we're after in life, what we run after. We fill up our time with this, the good stuff of this land. And so he says, you got to be careful. You better focus on this, that you make me first. 
that I get your heart, that, that you, you, you take the things that I've, I've taught and, and they're not just ideas, they, they're, they're inscribed, they're, they're etched onto your heart. He's talking about in, in this, this intentional formation. And he says that, that it would fill up your day, that it'd be the topic of conversation, that it would be on, on your hands, it, it would influence your actions, it would be on your forehead, it would be at the, at the front of what you think about, how you daydream, what your mind runs to, that it would be there at the start of the day and the end of the day, that these would be our focus. And he says, I want it to be on your heart that you would serve and love me alone. Jeremy Pierre says, people were made to worship God with all their heart, the full breadth of their internal experience and external conduct. God planned for this wholehearted dynamic love between himself and humans from the beginning and he remains committed to this plan until the end. Right? This is what we were singing about. We love because God first loved us. We care because he cared, because he stepped in and said, you were a slave. Other things were calling the shot in your life. You, you had no choice but to serve those things. But I rescued you, and I've redefined life now. Life begins with him. That's what he's saying about. And he says, now, I want your love. This is the language of, of affection. And it's affection that gives reality to the Christian experience. That's the difference between imitation and going along with the show and fitting in in some way with this church stuff that we're doing and this youth camp thing and being okay and you grow up in children's ministry and you color coloring sheets of Jesus and Bible stories and then you just kind of do the youth version of that and then people grow up and they do the adult version of that of if I, if I behave in all the really big categories that people notice and freak out about then maybe God will bless me, maybe he'll give me a good family, maybe he'll give me a su successful career and those are the things that people shape their life around. Affection makes all the difference between something fake and something real this is what grabs us on the inside. Look, look how God describes this in Deuteronomy 10. I remember Pastor Keith in, in a message in this series we did at Lakeview drawing out some of these words here. These are, these are words that talk about affection, right? So Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Right, this, this is the language of obsession. This is what an all-consuming passion 
sounds like. Here's a, here's a picture of something that's all-consuming. The, the, the Everglades in Florida used to be filled with all kinds of rodents and raccoons and roadkill, and it was a noisy place. And now if you go there, it's eerily quiet. And it's because 100,000 of these things have moved into town now. And they swallow up everything that is in their wake. You have these Burmese pythons, and, and, and they're not native to the area, right? They're, 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 they don't originate in Florida. But pet traders brought them, and then several of them, they just started setting them loose. Right? When, you, when you set loose an all-consuming passion like this, it starts to swallow up other things. It starts to take over. It starts to, to silence other activity and other noise and other stuff that life could be filled with. And, and this becomes what sets the agenda for everything else. And, and whatever that is for you, that is God. And it can be the real one or some counterfeit. But, but, but this is language of obsession here, right? Words like fear. Right? Some of y'all feel a little queasy when you saw those snakes, right? There's a, there's a, there's a fear response that gets generated in us. But, but fear it has so many dimensions to it. It has, it has things like loyalty. We respect things that we fear. We act in response to them. We, we, we have to accommodate them, right? If there's a, one of those pythons in the room here, you don't get to just ignore it. You, you, you respond to it. You make choices in light of where it's at. There are things that, that we can fear not having. And that looks like anxiety, worry about the future, whether that's going to ever arrive, a fear that we might lose it. It, it. it sets the priority for other things. It's so important that everything else lines up beneath it. Right? There, there are certain things that you tend to freak out when you don't have them. Right? Take a moment and just be honest with yourself. What tends to make you panic? What tends to make you feel like life tomorrow cannot be a good day unless... I've got this, unless I achieve this, unless that person approves of me, unless my parents let me get that. What do, you, what do you freak out about? What creates conflict in your life? What are you ready to tear your parents' heads off because they just will not let you get that thing that everybody else has and that you just feel like you are consigned to some sucky existence because they've not allowed you to have that. that that'll create fear in you. That'll create a fight or flight response. They don't want you involved with that particular friend group or they don't want you texting that person. They're keeping you away from what rules your heart right now. And so you get angry. We fear people and their responses, whether they're going to like us, what they're going to think about us. And so we begin to 
shape life. We begin to dress a certain way because of their expectations. We're not going to make those jokes anymore. We learn. It's like that just fell totally flat. I was the only person laughing just now, so strike that one uh, from use because we want them to respond in a way that's favorable to us. We can become intimidated and insecure and withdraw because running through our minds are our own interpretations of what people think about us. Right? We, we, can, we can freak out in, in weeks like this. Some of you, maybe you didn't want to come here because you didn't know. This is not comfortable for me to be interacting with other people that I don't really know well and what are they going to think about me and, 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 and whether or not I'm not going to be seen or like a loser or left alone. And that creates fear. There's things that we fear missing out on, being exiled and not included in. And so that, that brings depression, that brings disengagement with life because we didn't get that. Right? Do, do you have a sense of fear of missing out on God's nearness? on God's blessing, on everything that God has written the script and intended for you to experience, all that Jesus died and purchased for you and says, it's here for the taking. You get to enjoy it. There's reward for you. Or does it concern you that you would leave some of that behind? find this really interesting. John Bloom says, if I feared less, I would love more, both God and people. Right? Two great commandments. But it's just as true that if I feared more, I would love more, both God and people. I've been praying for a while for God to align my affections and desires with his for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of love. Let's grow determined. Let's become tenacious. Let us not settle in or make peace with misplaced fear governing any territory of our soul. God wants your fear. And he wants your walk. Right? The walk describes your habits, your schedule, what you jump at first, what you'll put off. And, and, and forget about and let that slide and it builds up and now you have to address it because it's been days and days and, and that's just piled up. Right? The schedule for life, how we spend our time, the last thing you do before you close your eyes at night and go to bed, we, we will make room for the things that we want. What gets our affections, what's grabbed us on the inside it will always show up in our life. We'll always find some way to, to, to move stuff around, to abandon stuff quick in order to make sure that we can do that. But listen, people's, people's patterns for life, right? in, in these years that you are living right now, People, people learn how to engage life. They learn what patterns to create. They, they start to form habits. 
that they will take with them into their 30s and 40s and 50s and beyond. Don't think that that magically comes together when you get serious about being a Christian or doing stuff that honors God when you're an adult. It just gets harder. Listen, you are right now, in some respects, not in every respect, but in some respects, you are right now at your easiest to walk out obedience in the context of life that God has given you. Do, do not dream for one second that all that just will fall into place when, when future you will care about that. Right now, you are putting in place patterns that will determine what you pursue, what you will become vulnerable to, what mess you will make, what consequences you'll bring into life in your future, what good you will build. And you will do that with what has gripped your heart. We serve the things that we love, right? That's the next word. Right? What we organize our world around, what we'll sacrifice for, what we'll take risks, stay up late to do. Right? You serve your job, you serve your hobbies, you serve academic life. Some of you do, you know, maybe some of you don't care anything about that, but some of you spend a lot of time doing homework, doing projects when the school year hits, and that matters, and your grades matter, and it, and it, and it takes up life, it takes up your pursuit, because that number, when it gets back, or that ACT score, or that whatever, that college acceptance, when the day that that, that comes, that, that will say something about your status and about who, your existence. And so you'll serve that. And these are good things, right? None of these are bad things to have in life. But, but Jesus is helping reveal our priorities here. Right? People serve what they fear and what they think will reward them. And that will determine what they run after and what they ignore. Listen, the, the, the sense of adventure in the Christian life is what comes in serving God. How has God called you to serve him? How has he gifted and equipped you to, to love him, to glorify him, and to be a blessing to other people in life, God and neighbor. Right? When, we, when we see that as our purpose and we, we allow our lives to take shape around that, that's what we know we have found, that treasure hidden in the field that that man sold everything that he had in order to gain. Because there was adventure. There, there was something that had caught his eye and finally, in Deuteronomy, he uses this word, love. My love talks about your affections, your attraction. It's the same word that's used for love between a man and a woman. Sexual desire and attraction gets pulled into this as well. The, the sense of love, of being a lover, taking deep pleasure in somebody or something, that, that piece of you, that that, that when she notices you, right, that'll, that, that'll 
keep you up at night. That'll keep you daydreaming. He responds to you a certain way, and, 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 and your, your heart rate, rate quickens, and it feels difficult to breathe, right? That, God made you that way. You guys realize that? God formed you to have desires that, that feel like they, they take over you. And, and they become everything you're thinking about, everything you want to run toward. What you love, that ache in your heart in order to have what you love. God made us that way because he formed in us the capacity to feel and experience him with that kind of intensity, with that kind of emotion, with that kind of lovesick response when he is distant from us. You ever miss God? You ever been in a, a time when Life just gets busy and you haven't been reading your Bible, haven't really prayed. Maybe you've missed youth or church. Or maybe you've, you've gone through all of those things, but, but some part of you, it's like it hasn't really been interacting with God. You ever feel, I, I miss God. I've, I've gone too long to spend time with him, to speak with him, to, to know he's near, to feel his comfort, to, to, to feel that wild and furious love that we've sung about. I want to draw near to him. I want to be close to him. Right? The reason why those things matter to us on a human level is because we were we were creatures that were given a heart and a soul so that we would interact with God with those pieces of who we are and that he would have all of them in everything else that we love and that we're called to pursue. He would be the one thing that every affection in our heart finds its target on. Right, where, where does this come from? Because I can describe that and maybe you can understand it in some way, in some concept. But I can't, in, in, in one sense, I can't just command you to do it. I mean, God does command us to do that. But that in and of itself doesn't do anything. I mean, I, I can't tell you, love this person. You know, if I, I, I present some match for you right here, I can't say, love her, love him, love this. Start getting interested in that. That's not what happens. That's not how the hobbies of life show up. You know, you're not commanding. Sometimes it starts with that. It's like you, like it or not, are going to practice piano every single day from when you're seven. And maybe you hate it and your fingers are bleeding and, you, you, you know, you're cursing your parents under your breath in, in seven-year-old language. Uh, and then over time, you've been around it long enough that you actually start to like it. And then you love it and then it becomes a passion. But just telling you, you have to have this, doesn't do that. There, there needs to be an encounter. Look at how John Piper puts it. He says, you, you do not merely decide to love him. 
something changes inside of you. And as a result, he becomes compellingly attractive. His glory, his beauty compels your admiration and delight. He becomes your supreme treasure. You love him. Something happens and you love him. And that's what I've been praying for. Because I can't just use words up here and create that inside of you. I don't have access to those hidden invisible places that Jesus describes that cause you to do everything that you do. But God does. Something happens. And you love him. And so you fear him and you walk with him and you serve him and you long to be near to him. He becomes the single focus and adventure of life. Something can happen in a moment. But often those are encounters over time where we, we take him into focus and we say, God, I want to see you more clearly today. I'm going to, by faith, open this up and I'm going to read it. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to show up and I'm going to see a little bit more of you and I'm going to love a little bit more of what I see in you and a little bit more of who I am becomes yours. It says the other thing I'm emphasizing in the phrase compellingly, compelling beautiful is that Love for God is not essentially thought or behavior, but affection. Not ideas or deeds, but delight. God is our supreme pleasure. We prefer above all else to know him and see him and be with him and be like him. God's after your heart and your soul, not just you being willing to acknowledge, yeah, there's a God and Jesus died. And notice where this man that comes to Jesus with this question ends up. And Ben, if you could come back up. Back in Mark 12, verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he's one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All right, so he congratulates Jesus and says, good job, Jesus, you answered wisely. <laughs> Which gives a little bit of a sense of where he's at. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's not far. In fact, he is so close, he is staring it in the face and somehow not seeing that the king is right before his eyes. He's not far from the kingdom, but he's not in it because Jesus is looking for something more than just an ability to say, Commandment number one, got it. Commandment number two, got it. I've memorized those verses. I know those facts. I could recite that. He's looking for 
heart and soul affection. Let's stand together.